You're listening to a sermon from Church of Christ at Treaty. For more resources, check out cctreaty.org. The title is, In Christ We Are Alive. And that's where we're going today. I want to read the word and then pray, and and we'll dive straight into this. Ephesians, Paul writes this, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus." For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. If you're a note taker, your first note is this. Paul tells us that we were the living dead. If you want to be a little more modern, you can say we were zombies, right? Um, Paul essentially is saying that we in Christ who are now made alive, which we'll unpack, we once were the walking or the living dead. If I came up to you today and I handed you some pills and I said, look, you need to take these pills, swallow them and take them, likely none of you would do that. However, if you sat in a medical office with a doctor or professionals who were speaking to you, and they told you, look, if you don't take these pills, you will likely die. We would all take them, right? We would take the pills. Sometimes we have to know how bad the news is before we can appreciate the good news, right? Sometimes we have to know how bad it was before we can actually appreciate what Jesus did for us. And so Paul is very clear in an encouraging message to the church, you were dead. In verse one, he says, we'll read this again. As for you, the church in Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were the living dead. Not sick, not dying, not unhealthy, not having an occasional bad day, what does Paul say? We were dead. What can a dead person do to help himself? Nothing. He's dead. And that is the word that Paul uses in describing our condition before Jesus. As for you, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Verse two, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, who is still at work, right? That spirit of the evil one is still at work in the lives of those who are disobedient. Paul says in verse three, all of us lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following after its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul isn't saying that you're worthless. Paul isn't saying that human beings have no value. His concern is not judgment day. He's not reading this and telling them, hey, you're all a lost cause and you're all gonna burn if you don't turn. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is showing the contrast of what humanity is like without God and what it is like with God in Christ. And so he wants us to understand what we were so that we can understand what we are in Jesus. As he looked back, uh, Paul looks back on his former life, he makes this assessment that before Jesus, he was dead, spiritually dead. Life aside and apart from God pushing him away is a life that is meaningless with no hope. It's a life worth not living at all. I'm not a big fan of sci-fi movies. I'm not a big fan of zombie type movies. I think they're weird and creepy, whatever that is. But the language that Paul uses is that before Jesus, we were literally soulless beings walking around seemingly alive, but dead with no existence. That's the picture that Paul gives us of our life before Jesus and without Jesus. God is the source of life. And the only way Paul's declaring to really experience life is to have a relationship with the one who gave it to us, to have a relationship with what we just talked about, the bread of life, a life outside of a relationship with Jesus. A life separated from God is a life of deadness. And the context of where our deadness comes from is our sin and our transgression. Look at Revelation chapter 21, later in the New Testament, it says in verse eight, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, what's the implication if there's a second one is that there's a first one. And Paul is showing us that the death in our sin and our transgression, the death of our sin is the precursor to being eternally forever separated from the Father God. And so sin, which is very simply the act of choosing to push God out of the picture, to live a life of our own gratification, a life lived in sin is a life lived outside of a relationship with God. But notice in the, the text that we just read that it's not just addressing the most vile of sins, which is what we so often want to do. He doesn't just mention child molesters, rapists, serial killers. As Christians, we like to sometimes think that that verse is for the most uh, vile and offensive of all sin. Yet read the text again. He says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. As for me, I was dead in my transgressions and sins, in which I used to live and when I followed the ways of the world. This was written to the church. We were the living dead. 
We're not insulated from these assessments in Revelation 21. In fact, even religious people can be dead in their sins. Think about Jesus when he confronted the Pharisees and he complained about their lifestyle. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, it should be on the screen, he says this, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Jesus says this, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of bones and of the dead and everything unclean. It's really easy to look good on the outside and be dead on the inside, right? It's really, really easy to clean out the outside of our house, to clean out the outside of our car, the outside of our appearance, the outside of our pride, to give the appearance that we're healthy. And on the inside, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You are like tombs that are beautiful on the outside and inside, there's nothing alive. We need to search our hearts today to not say, well, yeah, those people, and to maybe consider that we are dead in our sins and are dead in our transgressions in which we follow the ways of the world. And so I would ask you to consider this question today. Is there sin or what sin is hanging over you? What sin is hanging over you? Maybe it's the sin of gossip and the way that we talk about people. Maybe it's a sin of pride in the way that we think about other people or about highly of ourselves or the sin of poor stewardship, of gluttony, of not taking care of the bodies which God gave us or language or the things that we view. But each one of us is guilty of living a life disobediently, rebelling against God. All of us were guilty of attempting to push God out of the picture. And as we reject God's authority in our lives, we're choosing we are choosing and we're willingly submitting to the prince of the air, which is the devil, and the ruler of the air has control over us and we choose the tyrant instead of a savior. We're dead in our sins, we're walking dead. A lot of times I'll hear people say this uh, when they're explaining their sin, is they'll say something along the lines of, well, the devil made me do it, Right? You've heard that before? Like, uh, the devil just got the best of me, and I, I was in a weak spot, and I couldn't help myself. The devil made me do it. Now, Paul isn't saying that that isn't possible, but listen, he's also saying that sometimes we give the devil more credit than he deserves. We're attributing that he made us do it, but the truth is we've aligned our lives with him, and we did it to ourselves, the devil didn't make you do it. You just are pushed God out of the picture and you're aligned with the prince of the air and you did it yourself. Now, does the devil do things? Does the devil tempt us? For sure he does. But Paul doesn't see the devil as the mere threat. In some ways, it's the way that we align ourselves with what Paul calls gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We follow our desires and our thoughts. And the idea is that without God, those thoughts and those desires that we're tempted to gratify are aligned with the enemy. We choose to follow those desires. And our world and our culture and our society often reinforces these choices. I wanna give you a couple examples of this because I, I want us to see that I don't think that it's, 
these people are controlled by the devil and these aren't. It's very subtle and Paul knows that. That's why he says, you look like you're alive, but you're living in a dead place. Think about Germany, for example. How did Germany get to a place where it was so distorted that they followed Nazism? Not because German people are more sinful than other people, but because as a whole, a self-seeking order grew up in the chaos after the depression and not just lost people. Many people within the church were seeking what we seek, security, respect, economic prosperity, right? Think about the United States. How did we get so distorted with our views of racism? How has materialism had such a deep grip on our society? How do our needs, what we think we need, become our cravings, and those cravings that we have become our needs? How does the sexual practices of our culture become so distorted and idolatrous in the way that we view each other? See, the text that Paul gives us describes what was formerly true, but for many people is still reality. We never broke from the past of being dead. We're still dead. We're still attracted to the glitz. We're still attracted to the world. We can understand people who don't know God, and we can say, well, of course they're dead. They don't believe. But how could we possibly comprehend Christians who continually go back to death every single day? day. See, Christians, those who say that they follow Jesus, need to be more aware that the old order, the old self, Paul says, needs to die and no longer define who we are. If our desires as disciples are the same as the desires of non-disciples, then guess what? We are still dead. We are what Paul or what Jesus referred to as whitewashed tombs that look fantastic on the outside and on the inside, we're trash. We're dead, death, bones, deadness inside of us. I think about looking at houses. I don't know if you guys like to look at houses online. It's fun right now. It's really fun because you're like, how is that house worth $500,000, right? Because everything's so expensive right now. Um, But you can see houses that look like not that appealing on the outside. And we think like, oh, don't judge a book by the cover, right? You go inside and you're like, man, this is beautiful, right? Like they just did a work inside of this thing and it's incredible. And then you also see other houses that are like so nice on the outside, like they're power washed and they're beautiful and the shutters are great and they did a great job in the landscaping. And you go inside and you're like, have they ever swept, <laughs> right? Like, what are we doing in here, right? But like, I was thinking this week a little bit about how sometimes that's kind of the game in our Christian walk, right? Is we think if we can make the outside look really, really good, then we don't have to dress what's actually going on in the inside. So my guess is some of us here are here, and the reason in some ways that we're here is because of the appearance that I'm here. That that will then somehow translate to I'm following Christ because I'm here. And the truth is we could still be walking dead. So we really need to consider that today. But the second thing is, while Paul says that that's who we were, what he does give us as hope is he says, we have been made alive. We've been made alive. 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, he says, but because of his, God's great love for us, God who is rich. I love how Patrick talked about the spiritual blessings we have. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, future hope, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In most of the occasions in the New Testament, when you read about the verb uh, making something alive, we're talking about resurrection. That's, that's a better translation. So when we say we've been made alive in Christ, really what he's saying is we were radically dead, but we have been saved and raised in resurrection. Like we're made new, but in a sense, we were dead and Jesus gave us life again. Can you imagine if you've ever experienced, I personally haven't, someone maybe who at the hospital flatlines and you think it's the end and they come back. I mean, I can't think of a cooler testimony to resurrection. Right? And we look at the resurrection of Jesus who was breathless and entombed and then he's alive. And that's what Paul says happens to us in Christ. That when we, we, we aren't whitewashed tombs. What was once dead with no breath, with no life is now alive. In our relationship with God, we're made alive. And God is the only one that can accomplish this, Paul says. And what he did was through Jesus, raised us to life, defeated sin, defeated death, and brought resurrection. Paul says we've been saved by grace. And this term being saved points to the idea of rescue. You've been rescued, amen? Like I have been rescued from my sin and death, from my past. I have been pulled out of darkness. It's like pulling a drowning child out of the water when they're gonna go down for the last time and never come up again. Jesus grabs us and saves us. It's, it's like when there's a car coming and someone doesn't know there's a car coming and someone runs in front and pushes them out of the way, you have been saved by Jesus. Or when someone's choking and, and there's no breath, and you see someone give them CPR, and now all of a sudden they can breathe again. That's what God did in Christ for us. Are you happy about that? Because I am. Salvation is more than just being forgiven of our sins. It's being raised from the certainty of an eminent death and wrath that Paul describes, being moved from slavery and sin and rescued from the wrath of God. It's more than just, whew, I'm off the hook, right? It's more than just, oh, I got away with that one. I think sometimes that's how we treat it. Like, well, God doesn't see my sins anymore. Woo, it's a good thing, right? We've been rescued, rescued. I've referenced this, I think, before, The Guardian, the movie about the Coast Guard um, with Ashton Kutcher and uh, Kevin Costner. Yeah, somebody else has seen that movie. There's a scene in that movie, though, I just, I can't watch it and not get chills. And he's asking the question, what's your number? And you would think that the number is how many people he saved. But that's not the number. The number is how many people he lost. It haunts him. 
And I think of our Lord Jesus who rescues us and would leave 99 that he saved because the one that's lost wrecks him. And that may be you today. It's a sense of resurrection, a rescue mission, where Jesus is retrieving the dead from spiritual death and bringing us into a saved condition in Christ, a new life, a new reason for living, breathed inside of us, just like he breathed life into Adam and Eve. He wants to breathe life into you, if you would let him. Paul says three times, with Christ, in this verse, and it's significant because he's telling us that we do this in participation with Jesus. We don't do it on our own. He doesn't do it on his own. We are saved in our relationship with Christ, enjoying salvation, being connected and identifying with Christ. He participated in mankind. He became one with us, incarnate God, took on our sin and our conversion and our baptism. We identify with him, with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, Christianity is not a list of ideas. It's a participation with the Savior. Amen? Like, it is not a list of rules and regulations. It's a relationship with the living God that you can have, participating, being involved in fellowship with God through Christ. We're called to fellowship with Jesus, to be crucified with Christ, Paul says, that I no longer live, it's Christ that lives in me. We're united in his baptism and his death, putting on uh, off the old self and putting on Jesus and united in his resurrection. We're never more like Jesus than when we're alive. Because the grave couldn't hold him down, nor can death keep us from life. It's good news. And I love how that passage begins with, but God. You're sitting here like, Ryan, you, you don't understand the sin and the wrath and the destruction and all of the mistakes that I've made in that first part where Paul talks about gratifying the sinful natures. Yeah, I, I don't know, don't need to know, but God, but God setting apart the, the desperate condition of fallen mankind with the gracious initiative of the sovereign hand of God. We were the objects of wrath, deserving death and destruction, but because of his great love and his rich mercy that he has for each one of us, while we were dead and dead things don't rise, Christ rose so that we could raise with him. Like, this is good news. Tell all your dead friends that you know the one that can give them life. His name is Jesus. We were slaves in a, a, a position of dishonor, powerlessness, but God raised us up out of slavery into relationship with Christ and set us at the highest position of power next to the right hand of God. Man, God has reversed the effects of sin and condemnation. We have to hold both parts of this. We need to understand who we are by nature, but more than that, who we are by his grace. That while we were dead in our sins, Christ raised us to life through his grace. And so how does it happen? And we see that in the last few verses. How is it possible? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul says this, for it is by what? Grace, you have been saved through faith. 
This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What I think is really interesting about this passage is Paul actually spends more time telling us um, what didn't happen. Isn't that interesting? Like, it's almost like God knew we were gonna try to make it about ourselves. And so Paul says, time out, guys. Let me tell you what didn't happen. Look at this. Paul says this, it's not from yourself. It's not. It is a gift of God. Some of us, when someone gives you a gift, our natural tendency is to say, thank you. And, and to instantly think, well, what did I do to deserve this, right? A teacher, when you bring a gift at the end of the school year and you say, hey, I, I brought you this gift. It's like, oh, thanks. And the assumption is that their efforts in teaching you were um, what caused you to give the gift. We think, what did I do to deserve this? And Paul says, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. That's why it's a gift because you actually didn't do anything to deserve it. Paul says very clearly, it's not from yourself, it's from God. Second thing he says is, not only is it not from yourself, it's not by works. See, works refers to an accomplishment, to something we do as humans by which we gain the status or the privilege before God, right? We, we work for a paycheck, we, we work for someone's approval. However, nothing that we do grants right standing before God, right? Humans in and of themselves have no claim on God. We don't get to cause him to do something. In fact, we're actually incapable of doing anything that would result in God owing us salvation. So not only did we not do it ourselves, it's a gift, It's not from anything we did, not by our works. And then he closes with this third thought, so that, so there's a reason that it's not because of anything we've done, and there's a reason that it's not from us. It's so that, he says, no one can boast. See, salvation is not about our worth. It's not about us. In fact, what we have accomplished, it's about God and his grace, no strings attached, no hidden costs. You can't pay him back but God who is rich in mercy because he's kind and because he's good gave you a gift that you didn't give yourself and you didn't earn it, so do not brag about it. Salvation is not about what we've done. Yet, if we're honest, if I'm honest at times, we all struggle with this because we think, well, I'm all in. I'm in. I want this. Uh, I've grown my spiritual life. I'm growing in Jesus to some degree. And there's a sense of pride that wells up inside of us at times. And we develop this disdain for other people because we think, well, we've earned our salvation or we did what we were supposed to do to be saved. And these people aren't. However, if we do that, then we're making our association with Jesus all about ourselves. And I want to be clear that pride before our conversion is just as bad as pride after. Thinking that we are better than someone else before is wrong. And thinking that we're better because of something that Jesus did for us is also wrong. 
And so let's look at what Paul says when he defines how we experience this. Because not only does he say it's not from yourselves, it's a gift. It's not by your works. It's so that no one can boast. Salvation is not about what you've done. Listen to what he does say. It is by what? Grace. Grace means it's completely undeserved. It's a loving commitment to God, uh, of God to us. And for some reason, which we may not understand, but it's rooted in who God is, that he offers himself to us. He attaches his, his people. He attaches people who, who see their deadness and want to be made new in Jesus. He attaches them to himself and he rescues them by his grace. And the initiative is always his. We respond to what he already did for us. I, I listened again to Patrick's message and it was so great to remind myself that when we say, when, God, when is God gonna do his part? That was the phrase that he used. He already did it. Like he, it's done. It, it is finished. I mean, that's what Jesus said. It's been done. We have everything we need in Jesus. His grace has been offered to us. The initiative on his part is done. We become Christians by his grace, not as a result of our effort, not a result of our ability, our intelligence, our act of service. This is why Paul includes the passage where he says, while we were still in our sin. Like it wasn't like we got it all together, we quit cussing and all of a sudden Jesus saved us. He says, while you were still in your transgressions, we didn't do anything. The initiative was on God's end. He was the one moving to us before we ever even knew that we should move to him. He died for us and sent Jesus. And the Bible tells us that that grace is received through our faith, which is a relational covenant word, meaning that the commitment and the trust binds the two parties together. It's his grace and our faith that marry together that define the reliance on a reliable God. And it doesn't say much about us, but what it says about God is that he's faithful that he's trustworthy, that even when we don't hold up our end, he holds up his. So I wanna close by reading verses eight through 10 one more time. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul begins the paragraph in Ephesians with a portrayal of someone who's the subject of three powers. He says, of sin and death and wrath, Yet he refuses to end the chapter there because he trusted in God. And he reminds us that the only hope for dead people lies in the resurrection of the living God. And so, if you are walking dead, God wants to resurrect you today and make you alive. He doesn't wanna make you better he doesn't wanna make you a little more conscious on life support. He wants to bring you to life. 
I don't know about you guys. Like, I'm tired. I'm not fully healthy. I'm praying for life. I want the power and the spirit of God in my life in a way like I've never experienced it before. I want to feel alive, not conscious, not barely breathing, not doing enough to get by. I'm not asking for my daily bread. I'm asking for the one who can give me life to resurrect me today, to a new hope in the resurrection of Jesus that I can share with dead people that they don't have to be dead any longer, that they don't have to walk around like zombies wandering aimlessly with no purpose and really no existence or purpose, that they were created by God for him. He has a purpose. That's how Paul closes it. You have a purpose. He didn't just make you to breathe and make it through till next Sunday so you could go another week. He made it so you could be alive today. Come on, church. I want life. That's why it's a... Call it cliche, call it routine. When you find Jesus, you find life.